Today we begin a four-week mini-series on the Old Testament book of Jonah. And you may be wondering, okay, why Jonah? Well, there are two major reasons for this particular series. The first is this, because more than I care to admit, I'm a lot like Jonah. All the way from his avoiding making God known to his selfishness in the face of opportunities at times to serve others. So you're looking at a Jonah. And whether I like it or not, I need the challenge and the encouragement that I believe God has in store for me as a result of a careful examination of the four chapters that make up this book. So that's the first reason I need this. Second reason is because some of you are a lot like Jonah. The world outside this church is in great need, and oftentimes, like Jonah, as we'll see in the story, we're asleep, we're indifferent. The world is asking all kinds of questions. As a matter of fact, a survey recently released by uh, Lifeway Research reveals People outside the church are more interested in having spiritual conversations about Jesus than are the people inside the church interested in being engaged. So the reality is the world is asking all kinds of questions and at times it's either inconvenient for us to give answers or frankly, we just don't care. And so like me, some of you are like Jonah and together as a church, We need the reminder that this book is going to give to us in every episode, and that is that lost people matter to God. Until, as a congregation, we respond in greater measure to the depth of human need that surrounds us. This book can challenge and encourage us doing both of those things, challenge and encourage us as a result of our examination of these chapters. Okay, so in light of those purposes, when we come to this book and we begin to read, like these opening verses of scripture here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city, Nineveh, preach against it, and so forth. And we read of this man's disobedience and how he ends up getting swallowed by a great fish and he's deposited on land, goes to Nineveh, preaches, people repent, Nona pouts. As we're reading this story, the question is, what exactly are we reading? Well, the popular opinion is that what we're reading is basically mythological, a mythological fairy tale. Either this is an allegory where everything in the book represents something. Maybe Jonah represents the nation of Israel. Maybe the fish represents Babylon. Maybe the fish that swallowed Jonah represents Babylon taking the nation of Israel into exile, perhaps. So it could be an allegory. Others would say it's more like a parable that draws our attention to a moral lesson on the universal love of God. But both of those views, allegory, parable, have this much in common. What occurs in the writing of this book didn't happen. This is not history, this is fiction. Now I wanna suggest to you this morning that what we're reading is history. And actually, the reason I want to draw your attention to this isn't simply an intellectual or academic exercise, but because of this factor. 
What you understand this book to be will greatly impact your understanding of its message for you today and for us as a congregation. So I want to share with you three reasons why I think what we're dealing with here is actual history. Here's the first of the three reasons. There's another Old Testament passage, just one, that draws our attention to this man, Jonah. It's in, we'll see this passage shortly. It's in um, 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, a passage that is regarded to be history. It's historical narrative material. 2 Kings mentions Jonah by name, that his father's name was Amittai, and that he lived during the reign of a wicked king by the name of Jeroboam. So that's one reason. That would seem to suggest this is history. Secondly, there's nothing in this book that suggests that it's not history. And what I mean by that is this. When the literary forms of allegory or parable appear in the Bible, we're oftentimes given clues that that's what we're reading. But none of that exists actually here. Instead, we read the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and you just get the sense God isn't playing games with us. He's talking about an actual man that lived in history whose father's name was Amittai, and God called him to take on a very specific task. So in reading the four chapters of this book, you just get the impression we're reading real history. So to understand it's something other than history, I think is to miss the true intent of the author. But there's a third reason, and this for me is really the clincher as to why I think it's history, and it has to do with the teaching ministry of Jesus. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus refers to Jonah by name. Look at these verses with me, Matthew chapter 12. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is recognizing the historical existence of Jonah and that he's, he was swallowed by a great fish. And then he goes on to say, the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is also affirming Jonah went to Nineveh, preached, and there was a great response. People repented at his preaching. So clearly, Jesus believed that Jonah was a historical figure. So if anyone comes up to you and says, you know, the Bible has a lot of weird stuff in it. You know, like that story about this guy who got swallowed by a great fish. You don't believe in that fish story, do you? I hope you'll say, well, as a matter of fact, I do, because Jesus did. Okay, so much for the purpose and the nature of the book, what we're reading. I want you to notice if you have sermon notes on the front under theme. So there's the title of the message today, Who, Me? And then it says theme. It says the following. So here's the sermon today in a sentence. God calls us to respond in greater measure to the world around us. So I want to suggest that God's challenge and encouragement for us to respond in greater measure to the world around us can be summarized in the three statements that are on your sermon notes. First of all, what God wants from us. Secondly, how we typically respond to what God wants from us. And thirdly, all right, what are we supposed to do now? So what does God want from us? 
What God wants from us personally and as a church, I think is very apparent when we examine two things, God's character as well as his call. First of all, think about God's character. You know, you're reading through the Bible and you'll discover that one particular story or episode emphasizes one aspect of the character of God. Maybe it's a miracle that Jesus performed illustrating his great power. Another section might reveal his compassion or his uh, sovereignty or something of that nature. When you and I read the book of Jonah, what we're really emphasizing, what is emphasized for us here in terms of God's character is the largeness of God's heart. The largeness of God's heart. So the book begins with this statement, go to the great city, and it ends. Here's the very last, this is how the book ends, chapter four, verse 11. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Go to the city, should I not be concerned about that city? And everything that happens between these bookends, whether we're reading about the conversion of Gentile sailors or the recommissioning of this prophet or whatever else it might be, has this one great concern to teach us that God's heart is larger than the borders of Israel. You see, we tend to read this book as a, primarily as a story about a prophet and then draw our moral lessons. Boys and girls, don't be like Jonah. Don't disobey God like Jonah did or don't pout like Jonah did. But this is not primarily a story about Jonah. You say, it isn't? No, it isn't. This is primarily a story about God. And so through the conversion of both the Gentile sailors and the people of Nineveh, God is showing us that he's no bigoted, narrow-hearted, racist God that his heart wasn't limited to Israel as if to have no desires or interests in anybody else. And so if that's the message of this book for ancient Israel, its message to us flows out of that because according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, you and I as believers in Jesus constitute the new Israel of God. We are spiritual Israel. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And so this book is given to remind us that while we're a blessed people, there are Ninevehs all around us. And if we're not careful, we can have the same cold, indifferent attitude toward our Nineveh that Jonah had toward his. So Jonah then becomes like a specimen Israelite. He's like a mirror reflecting the image of the nation itself whereas God wants to emphasize the largeness of his heart for all kinds of people. So in terms of what you should write on your outline, in the blank there, write this down, that what does God want from us? He wants a heart for lost people. Heart for lost people. So that's what we see when we examine the character of God through this book. But we also see the same thing, what God wants, as we examine God's call. So verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Who is Jonah? Well, his name means dove. And as I referenced earlier, the only other passage in the entire Old Testament that draws attention to him is in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now let's look at these verses. This is what they say. Jeroboam became king of Samaria. That would be the northern kingdom of Israel. He reigned for 41 years. That's a long time. 
He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. Now looking at this passage of scripture, what do we learn about Jonah? Well, we learn first of all that he was from Gath Hefer, and if you were to Google that, you would discover that Gath Hefer was located up in the northern part of Israel near this large lake called the Sea of Galilee and not too far from Nazareth, which is where Jesus was raised. So that's where he's from. It also tells us he lived during the reign of a wicked king by the name of Jeroboam. Now this would be Jeroboam II who ruled in the eighth century BC. Now during this period, Jonah made a fascinating prophecy. So here's Jeroboam, this wicked king, and in spite of his wickedness, God extends the borders of his kingdom, an event that this man Jonah prophesied. So Jonah learns a very important lesson that would impact him during the entire episode, the story that makes up the book of Jonah, that being that God is gracious and merciful toward undeserving people like this king. So that's what we're told about Jonah. All right, what was he supposed to do? Coming back to Jonah chapter one, verse two, it says, here's his commission. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. Now Nineveh was the capital of the superpower of the day, Assyria. Nineveh was located about 220 miles north of present day Baghdad in now uh, northern Iraq. It was about 550 miles from Jonah's hometown of Gath Hefer. Now, when God said to him, go to the great city of Nineveh, God is asking this man to do something that no other prophet has ever done, and that is to minister outside the nation of Israel. So why is Jonah called to go there? Well, to show us once again that God's heart is larger than the borders of Israel. I don't know who or what your Nineveh might be. Maybe it's the woman who lives next door to you, lets its dog do its thing all over your property. Maybe it's your foul-mouthed manager at work. Maybe it's someone on your school team or who sits near you in third period math or you know, the person who has wronged you, but God's heart is large enough to include the person you like the least. Let that sink in. This may come as a surprise to you, but God's heart is certainly large enough to include members of the LGBTQ community, Muslims, even those from the Middle East, rednecks, Democrats, Republicans, People like country western music. Yeah, there you go. So his heart is large enough to include all kinds of people. Some people think, you know, God speaks English with a Minnesota accent and is sort of of European descent. Well, Jonah thought God spoke Hebrew and Nineveh was certainly not on his prayer list. So what does God want from us? God's character, God's call emphasized he wants a heart for lost people. All right, secondly, how do we respond? 
Well, unfortunately, our response is oftentimes like Jonah, which is exactly why this book is in the Bible. So what was Jonah's response to God's call? Look at verse 3. But Jonah, so God said to him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard, sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah goes to Joppa. Look at this map. So um, you see where Jonah is or where Joppa is, uh, about 70 miles from gath Hefer, where Jonah lives. And instead of going, you know, God said, go east, young man. And instead of going 550 miles to Nineveh, what does he do? He gets on the ship and travels with the intent in mind of going more than 2,000 miles to Tarshish, which was located in what many scholars would say is modern-day Spain. Wow. Now, it says his purpose was to flee from the Lord. Seriously. Doesn't Jonah know that God is everywhere? Isn't he familiar with Old Testament passages like Psalm 139 that say, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I descend into the depth, you're there. God is everywhere. Well, of course he knew that. But this phrase, to flee from the Lord, is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to the place where God makes himself known in a very special way. So Jonah wants to get as far away from Israel as he possibly can. You know why? Because it's in Israel that God's word comes to prophets. It's in Israel that they have the temple. It's in Israel that they have the Ark of the Covenant and, and God's law, all of these amazing blessings. I mean, can you imagine what life would be like for Jonah if he had remained in Israel? I mean, if he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, why not just stay there? in Israel, well, he wants to leave the place where there are too many reminders of God. But if you think about it, we do the same thing. When we're bent on a course of disobedience, willful defiance of what we know to be God's will, last thing we wanna do is come to church, read our Bibles, pray, sing Christian songs, why? Because those things remind us of who God is and his right to rule our lives. And that's torture to a disobedient Christian. So Jonah wants to get as far away from everything that reminds him of his obligations to God. But the question is, why? Why does he want to do this? Could it be that he was just afraid of what the people of Nineveh might do to him? Well, there's nothing in the record that would suggest that. Okay, if he wasn't afraid, maybe he wanted to avoid going to Nineveh because of the difficulty of the mission. I mean, he can't exactly get, you know, buy a plane ticket and fly to Nineveh. He's going to have to go over months of travel on difficult terrain on a donkey. That had to be hard. Maybe that's the reason. Well, there's nothing in the text of Scripture that would suggest he avoided going because either he was afraid or because of the difficulty of the mission. Let's let Jonah tell us why he didn't go, shall we? Chapter three, verse 10 and following. Look at this. When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. 
He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sun and calamity. It's as if he's saying, Lord, if you really intended to wipe out these people of Nineveh, you didn't have to send me there. You could have toasted them like you did the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I didn't have to go. I know you're up to something. I know if I go and I preach telling these people they're about to be destroyed, they're gonna turn, you're gonna so work on their hearts, they're gonna to turn toward you, they're gonna repent, and you're gonna relent and you're gonna have compassion on the people. And I've learned that lesson about you and your character way back dealings with this wicked King Jeroboam that when people are wicked, you can show compassion and grace and kindness to them when they repent. And so Jonah's problem is that of a racial, national, and spiritual pride. So he's thinking Israel is God's pet, and he failed to realize that God blesses us that we in turn might be a blessing to other people. So the passage reveals Jonah disobeys because he thought God was going to show mercy and grace, and that for him was a reflection of his racial, national, spiritual prejudice and pride. So when God calls us, how do we typically respond? Well, often we run away from the Lord too. Any pride or indifference keeping you from sharing Jesus with neighbors or schoolmates or friends? You know, God says, go and preach to your classmates. All right, when was the last time you had a meaningful spiritual conversation with a classmate about Jesus? Ever? God says, go and preach to your coworkers. I mean, is that even on your radar? God says, go and preach to your neighbors. Well, we've just finished a four-week series in Sunday morning communities on the art of neighboring that emphasize the importance of our getting to know our neighbors, learning their names. Are you doing that? Are you praying for them by name? When was the last time you cried to God to save a neighbor? So what does God want from us? He wants larger hearts. How do we typically respond? Many of us, like Jonah, we're proud. Frankly, we're indifferent and running away from the call of God. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to be restored. I want you to notice in this story the elements that God used to restore his prophet as well as the process that he employed. Regarding the elements, God uses wind, says in verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Notice whose wind it is, God's wind. And such a violent storm arose that a ship, the ship threatened to break up. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. The men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And so God sends a storm, intensifies the storm. What is he doing? He's using the elements of the physical creation over which he rules to restore his disobedient prophet. But then he also uses the casting of, lot, of lots, which were like dice. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. The lots, lot, they, cast, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Well, that wasn't a, by accident. 
Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He guided the outcome. So God is in sovereign control over, over even the smallest details of life, like the casting of lots. Then he also used the conversion of Gentile sailors. So at the beginning of the storm, they're acting just like, you know, the people of Nineveh. In this case, they're crying out each one to his or her own God. But at the end of the chapter, it says this in verse 16, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So they, they were changed. So the people, this is to me revealing something of the humor of God. The people that Jonah wants to avoid, pagan people in Nineveh, are the very kinds of people and these sailors that God uses in the process of his restoration. Wind, lots, sailors, fish. So now we come to verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now, we're not given any more information about this fish. So here's a real fish story, huh? Yeah. Some scientists believe it may, and I want to emphasize may, because we're not told in the text what it was, may have been a, what is called a whale shark. So this is what a whale shark looks like, largest fish in the sea, and it swims with its mouth open like this because it's a filter feeder. Fields on, it, it feeds on plankton, about 40 feet long. This next picture shows you its size in comparison to a 40-foot long school bus. So you get an idea of how big these creatures are. Now this last picture is a picture of Jonah about to get swallowed by the fish. Now, it's actually a snorkeler off the coast of Mexico, but there you go, all right. The point is that God is so committed to our restoration, he's gonna use all kinds of things even in the physical and moral world, storms, lots, sailors, fish, COVID, the retirement of the founding pastor of the church, the fact that we're a smaller church today than we've been in recent years, all of these things to bring us back to a sense of our mission now. So having looked at the means, what are, what's the process by which restoration takes place? So I want to mention this very quickly because we're going to discover that the same process that God used to restore his prophet are the same three steps that he wants to use to restore us. First of all, arousal from a state of slumber. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, adds, and he snored. Yeah. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. I mean, can you picture this? There's all of this commotion going on and these pagan sailors each crying out to his God, a group of people, 500 or so miles away in a place called Nineveh or under judgment, Jonah is asleep. How can you sleep? Get up and call on God lest the people in your sphere of influence perish. All right, a second step in the process of restoration is his honest confession of his sin. He answered, 
I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Well, this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? Well, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So Jonah makes full confession of his wrongdoing and that leads to the final step in the process, a new disposition to obey. So God gives him a second chance. Chapter three, verse one, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So what about us? What's the process by which God wants to use in my life, your life in city church to restore us? Well, same three things. First of all, personally and as a church, we need to be aroused from our slumber. God is saying to me and to you, church, how can you sleep? I mean, some of us need to wake up to the reality of God's character, that he's a God of love and grace who saved you and he longs to save others. Others of us need to wake up to the reality of his call. I mean, out there in Nineveh are people that matter to God. They don't know how much they matter to him, but they do. And the interesting thing is, God asking is not asking you to get weird. He's not asking you to do things that are contrary to your personality or your gifting. It's not asking you to you know, go down Lake Street with a, a sign that says repent or perish or whatever. No, he's just asking you to be you with your gifts, your personality, and your spheres of, of involvement to live out a life that's going to be honoring to God and as he opens up doors to share Christ with other people. That's what he's asking you and me to do. You're God's representative and you're Nineveh. So let's wake up to his call. Let's wake up to the reality of human need. Well, in addition to arousal, we also need an honest confession of our disobedience. So it's saying, Lord, you know, I'm a lot like this guy Jonah. I mean, my pride gets in the way of my praying for lost people and telling them how gracious and kind and loving and forgiving you can be. So if our church, I mean, if you and I are to be restored, there not only needs to be arousal from slumber, but an honest confession of our coldness and in times our indifference. And that leads finally to a new desire to obey. And so the God who commissioned Jonah to go and preach to the lost people of Nineveh has commissioned me and he's commissioned you. And we have the best motivation in all the world to comply with his, his call. You know what it is? A greater than Jonah has come, who spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth for me and for you. Jesus Christ, in terms of his, his death on the cross for you, his burial for you, his resurrection from the dead to change and greatly transform your heart and life. And so he says, arise, go. Go, church, go. And in response to his grace to us, may we be aroused from our slumber, be willing to confess our Jonah-like spirit, and be found on the path of obedience. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we confess that like Jonah, we often enjoy our faith and the privilege of being with our Christian friends while avoiding the responsibility of making you known to others. Lord, we're frequently too concerned about our comfort to even care. 
too fearful of rejection and even of being thought of as weird or indifferent. And so we avoid the task of telling the Ninevites in each of our worlds about you. So Father, we're asking you to forgive us. We're asking you to help us to so love you and others that with sensitivity and compassion, we begin to find all kinds of ways to recommend you to those who desperately need you. Use us, we pray, to extend the reign of Jesus throughout our world, in whose name we pray, amen.